Welcome everyone to Two Guys to the Dark Tower Came, a podcast where we discuss the characters and connections in the ever-expanding universe that revolves around Stephen King's Dark Tower. I'm Jay Russo. And I'm Sean McGurr. You can email us at twoguysdarktower at gmail.com. To support the show, visit us at patreon.com slash twoguysdarktower. And you can buy merch at store.twoguystothedarktowercame.com. In this episode, we'll cover Christine, chapters 12 through 19. Let's start the show. Dennis learns about Christine's history from George LeBay. Roland's daughter choked to death in the car, and his wife took her life in the car. Dennis notices that Arnie seems to be haphazardly fixing Christine in very odd ways. Arnie gets a girlfriend, Lee Cabot, a beautiful transfer student. Buddy Repperton and Arnie fight, and Dennis gets involved when Buddy pulls out a switchblade, the result of which is Buddy being expelled. During a losing football season, Dennis is badly injured. Jay, based on my recap there, doesn't seem as if a whole lot happens in the plot in this section. We get a lot of backstory, exposition from George LeBay, and then slight moving on uh, with the characters. Uh, The big thing, Arnie getting the girlfriend. Dennis doing a little bit of poking around around the car, but nothing major happening with Christine itself at this point. And yet, all throughout this, I was like entranced by this and just kept flipping pages. It was like 100 pages, but like not a whole lot happens, but I was still totally into it. You're right. Not a lot happened plot-wise, but so much happened. I mean, we learned a lot of things. We learned about Christine's history. We learned about uh, Roland LeBay's history. We learned about a little bit of what Arnie has been going through and the progress he's making and get some keen insights into what Arnie's life is like on a day-to-day basis, both at home and in the schoolyard. Mm. So while this is maybe some table setting and a little bit of backfill so we understand things that might happen later, it is really vital to the story and it's really compelling and very well written. And that's one of the reasons why this is such a great Stephen King book. It's just a great story, and it's, I think, some of his best writing. Um, While this has been light on plot, um, there are a couple of really interesting themes in this section of the book. Mm. And one of them I think we should talk about is times. It's something that George LeBay refers to and and kind of is the genesis of this thought for me. And he talks about how there are Throughout history, there have been certain times when a lot of people have sort of had simultaneous ideas. And he uses the example of like, well, there was this time when everybody started to make things like steam engines. And he brings this up talking about Christine and really talking about his brother, Roland, and that how Roland is like an animal and he acts on instinct more than how people would act in terms of a a civil society. So George LeBay surmises that his brother Roland felt like there was a time that he would own Christine, and then there was a time he would put Christine away. And finally, there was a time for him to sell Christine. And that was when he put the for sale sign in her window. And from that moment, Christine was basically ready to pass to a new owner. And from there, it was time for Roland LeBay to die hmm. because he no longer had the connection to the car. So I thought this was a really important thing because there are other aspects of this so-called times in this section of the book. Yeah, there's that. And the way that George LeBay talks about those times, 
They all seem to be a way that civilization progresses, but maybe not in the best of ways. Mm. So he starts off with this idea of steam engines, which, yeah, steam engines are good. But his other examples are the Civil War comes and, and all at once it's ironclad time. Then it's machine gun time. Next thing you know, it's electricity time and wireless time. And finally, it's atom bomb time. As if those ideas all come not from individuals, but from some great wave of intelligence that always keeps flowing, some wave of intelligence that is outside of humanity. And yet all of those things have a dark side to them, if not a very dark side. Like, I don't know if everyone would be like, oh, yay, we have machine guns and atom bombs. Like, this is not necessarily the way that we want things to to progress. And for him to make those distinctions and then to talk in that same vein about Christine, which could be like, oh, it's automobile time, but yet Christine is not something that he's happy about. He's pretty sure it killed his sister-in-law. He's pretty sure it killed his niece and and his brother, for that matter, that, as you said, once his time is gone, R- Roland is no longer necessary. So yeah, I thought that that was an interesting idea too, and I had noted it as well, that this was important. And he goes on when he talks about that time thing to say that there's something decidedly unchristian about it, mm. these ideas coming up. And then the fact that he's talking about Christine is somehow evil or foul or more importantly, maybe not of this natural way. It's, it's, it's more foul or poisonous in some way. Mm. To kind of build off of that, Christine being evil or poisonous, um, to borrow a word from the Dark Tower and something we associate with the Man in Black, Christine seemed to be dim at times. There was all of the years that we don't know about like the exact time span, but when Christine wasn't on the road, when, when Roland LeBay wasn't driving her around very much, if at all, but she wasn't for sale. And when Roland put Christine out for sale, she was like dim to others who drove by. Who knows how many other people who might have been looking to buy a used car drove right past her and like kind of just didn't notice that she was there. For Arnie, though, Christine was like a beacon. Not perfect, but when Arnie looked at Christine parked in the front yard of Roland LeBay's house, he saw potential. Mm. He saw something that wasn't perfect yet, but could become so. And he kind of saw something that shone brightly and he wanted it. And there's a line that describes it as a Venus flytrap at the edge of a swamp, its green jaws wide open, waiting for an insect to land, the right insect. (laughs) And that insect is Arnie. Arnie. Yeah. Right? So it's likening Christine to not only being evil and poisonous, but an outright trap. There isn't anything good that Arnie can get from this, not even the satisfaction of fixing up an old car, which can be rewarding, but it's like, no, it's going to come at a cost. And there's an interesting parallel there because I guess you could say that Arnie himself was dim for everybody at school, except for Lee. And that's because Lee was new, or Mm. that's how Dennis sees it, right? It might not be the only reason, but Lee being so new doesn't have a memory of the way Arnie looked and acted before he had Christine. So she can see only the new version of Arnie, and that's a much more appealing version of him, I guess, in how he looks at least. Right. So I liked applying this idea of being dim, that Christine is like, people didn't even see the car. It was just background noise until Arnie came along. Yes, because even in the that very first scene when they're riding by, Arnie says to Dennis, stop, stop. Do you see that? And Dennis has no idea what he's talking about. Mm-hmm. He's like, go back and look. And then he's like, look, he's like, wait, wait, oh, that? Like, I just drove by it because I 
didn't even see it. And Dennis doesn't even see that potential. He just sees it as a wreck. And more so, he seems to sense right away something's off about this car, especially after he starts getting visions, right? That, okay, mm-hmm. not only is this car not going to be able to be fixed up, it is really going to be a money pit for you, but it, there's also something weird about it. But I love how you pointed out how Arnie was dim because not dim in the sense of of not smart, but just like no one noticed him. He fades into the background, right? Yeah. And Lee doesn't see that at all. Lee sees a confident, decent looking guy. And I think that confidence is a big thing, right? That we start Mm -hmm. to get the hints in this section that Arnie's changing. His pimples have cleared up. He's much more confident. He's willing to ask out Lee. And Dennis is noticing these changes, although it seems to be harder for Dennis to notice them at first, right? Like Because- it's gradual and, and he sees Arnie as he was before. And it's hard to do that, right? Like if you grow up with somebody and you, or you're all, you don't see those changes happening, but it's somebody who either has been away from somebody for a long time or in Lee's case, who is new, who's like, oh, there's this guy. And you're like, oh, I'm looking through with new eyes, which is what Dennis is doing. But there are some other things too, right? Like Arnie's also hurt himself and it's Dennis's mother who notices that, that Hey, he's got a limp too. What's that? And Dennis hasn't noticed that either. It's another way in which Dennis is sort of like blind to what's happening with his friend. Yeah. It's harder to see changes in somebody when you see them every single day. And Dennis sees Arnie every single day. He might not see him as much as he did before he bought Christine, but he still sees him very, very often. Whereas Dennis's mom seems like she hadn't seen Arnie in a month or two months and he suddenly has a limp. Yeah. Be more obvious to her. But that is interesting. And this is something that I'm sure we'll talk more about in later episodes, but it seems that it's a coincidence at the very least that Arnie acquired Christine and has been making repairs in the haphazard way, like you said in the intro. And Arnie has also been changing for the better. It's like the two are mutually benefiting from each other. Mm. Christine is, is improving and Arnie is improving, but there seems to be some cost, such as the hurt back and the limp. Yep. And it makes me wonder what more will Arnie have to pay to continue to own Christine? And it's all moderately fascinating. I was going to say that exact same thing and moderately fascinating. He must be buying Clearasil at the same time to fix up his face. That's right. Well, all of that gets us into this next section, which is a, it's a well-worn trope, but King does it so well here. And that is high school is really this messed up place and situation. Uh-huh. And Arnie, as someone who's in the lower rung of the ladder of popularity and being noticed and all these things, really shows that through. He's picked on by bullies. He doesn't have a whole lot of friends. Um, He's in a different set of classes, maybe, than the popular kids. And so, but even with Dennis, you get some of that too. Like, you, you get this microcosm of what high school is like in a small town. And how really for these kids, that's all there is, right? Mm -hmm. Like that's all you know, your social life, your school life, everything's tied up in high school and how messed up it is. And parents certainly don't help along the way. And there's quite an interesting juxtaposition between Arnie's parents and Dennis' parents in this section. And Arnie's parents, especially his father, want Dennis to sort of spy on Arnie, see what he's doing, because they can't go and ask him. They're just in this terrible relationship where... Arnie doesn't trust his parents. His parents don't trust him. Mm -hmm. His mom is overbearing. His father doesn't seem to have much of a clue. And it's so unlike Dennis's parents, who seem to be in this really loving relationship and Dennis can talk to. And I just really love the way that Dennis's father talked to him very openly about his dealings with Darnell in the past. Yeah. 
Yeah. And just how open and, and just how great that was. And it really contrasted nicely with Arnie's parents. There's a line that's something along the lines of, if we all didn't go to high school, none of us would believe it. <laughs> yep. And it's because no matter what our respective high school experiences were, whether you went to school in the 70s, like the characters in this book, or you just finished high school last spring, your high school experiences will have been or will be like nothing else in your life. And it's going to be something that you look back on and marvel at, if not just groan in disbelief. <laughs> it, 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 is, it is a bonkers period of time. And it's interesting, like Dennis sort of reflects on how there is this inherent conservatism of high school students. Mm. And he talks about how, you know, there are these high school students who dress a certain way or listen to certain kinds of music or are fans of this or into that. But despite all of that window dressing, they're still sort of like timid at heart. They don't really have the courage of those convictions, I guess, because they are still kids. Right. They're still figuring stuff out. They're still dependent upon their school structure and the system there and the their parents and things like that. Um, one of the lines is like, there are girls who might have every album of Black Sabbath, but if Ozzy Osbourne went to their school and asked one of them for a date, that girl and all of her friends would laugh herself into a hemorrhage at the very idea. <laughs> yep. You know, and I don't know if something like that is still true today, you know, if the equivalent of Black Sabbath and Ozzy Osbourne or whatever, but the point is there, and I think it has validity in the the larger sense that they're still kids and they're still figuring out so much about themselves that yeah, they might dress like this or that, but they're still not going to go as far afield as the trendy clothes they're wearing say they do. Right, Dennis is a good example of this. Like the whole first part of this book, he's talking about how he's dating the cheerleader. Mm -hmm. He doesn't even really talk about her name, right? Just like, oh yeah, me and the cheerleader went out and me and the cheerleader did this. And almost as if that's what's expected of me. I'm the mm -hmm. big football star. So of course I'm going to date one of the cheerleaders because again, that high school conservatism, that's the role I'm in. I'm not going to go too far outside that role. Yep. And when things don't work out, you know, for whatever reason, like eventually he and the cheerleader break up, he thinks it's only natural that, oh, I'm going to take a shot at Lee Cabot, right? The new transfer student, because she's very pretty. Mm -hmm. And I'm, yeah. I'm the popular, good-looking football player. I'm going to ask out the pretty girl. And he's sort of stunned and maybe jealous that Arnie has done it, but he's also very proud of Arnie. Mm -hmm. And he talks about how courageous Arnie is because he's able to just pick up the phone and ask her out. And we get this long discussion of Arnie actually telling... I mean, this shows how great their friendship is, right? That even, yeah. even despite the problems they're having, like Arnie talks to Dennis and tells him how scared he was. Like, I didn't know if I could do it. I called her up. This is how it all went down. And I did it. And, and Dennis is like, wow, that's super courageous of Arnie to just mm -hmm. ask this girl out who's out of his league, probably. Although maybe not so much. Lee doesn't think that anymore because Lee didn't know Arnie before. But like Dennis is like, man, she's out of his league. She's in my league. And, <laughs> but, but yet he does it. And King just nailed this. Mm -hmm. Like I haven't felt for Arnie much this book, but that is so on the nose about like, he talks about how difficult it is for some guys who never ask a girl out and some girls who never get asked out and how alone you must feel and how, how you have to take this courage. And when Arnie does it, he's just like, damn, good on you, brother. Like way to go. Yeah. Arnie was deliberate. He took an action that was extraordinarily difficult and well I'm, I'm talking about picking up the phone and dialing somebody but the, <laughs> i suspect that the dates and the girlfriends that dennis had 
were sort of already sort of in his circle of acquaintances and friends. Mm. Yep. And they were already spending time together. And all he needed to do was sort of wait for one of the cheerleaders to bat her eyelashes at him. And, and then it was like, hey, do you want to get a soda later or something? And the next thing you know, they're kind of an item. Right. I don't think he did what Arnie did. I don't think he called a cheerleader who he barely knew at her home, spoke to her parents, and then asked her on a date formally yep. the way Arnie did. That's what Dennis is getting at. And that is a difficult thing, especially if you don't have a lot of experience doing it, especially if you're younger. I've been there. I know how tough it can be. <laughs> well, I was going to say that might be the big thing, right? Like, I think this hits home for you and I in a way that it might not for younger listeners or readers because mm -hmm. you couldn't just text them. You couldn't just be on Facebook or Instagram or whatever and, and put a, something in their DMs. Like, it was a lot of work to pick up a phone, call it. Not know who was going to answer the phone. Yep. Was it going to be mom, dad, little brother, older brother, younger sister, yeah. whatever? Ask for the person and then go through the formal like, hey, can we go out at such and such a time? Because I looked up in the newspaper and saw that such and such movie was playing at 730 at the mall. Like, There's a lot going on there that people don't have to go through today. Because you know, as soon as even if that call goes the way you hope, as soon as it ends, the other side of that is going to be a whole family of 20 questions. <laughs> Who was that who called? What did they want? Yep. And it makes it a lot harder. And the fact that Arnie did it, Arnie just said, yeah, I want to ask this girl on a date. And he did it. He's kind of a hero. Yeah. Just absolutely. to have that. Of course, there's that part of it, of high school. And that, you know, reading that got all that sort of nervous and yet joyous energy in me. Like I remember, you know, making those calls and being at once nervous, but then like you'd hang up the phone and if you got a yes, you'd be like, yeah, all right, this is going to happen. Mm -hmm. and, and that's like the fun part of high school, even that nervous. But then there's the really terrible part of high school that Stephen King also gets in here, right? Which is, oh, I have to walk past all the potheads to get to my class. And oh, along the way, somebody might trip me, smash my lunch and pull out a switchblade. Yes. And that's sort of this violence that's inherent in the system, especially back then when we didn't have... Well, now you can see the violence inherent in the system. Yeah. <laughs> you had to get that in, didn't you? <laughs> yes, I did. As opposed to like the, the the safer... There's still bullies today, but like a different type of bullying back then where it was actually physical, thrown in a locker, tripped, beat up, and potentially even stabbed maybe. And Arnie draws that to him, unfortunately. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't help that there's kids who are 19 years old and are still in school and have the opportunity to do this. Yep. It's one of the, the darker sides of the system like this. It, it makes high school into something akin to like a prison yard mm. because everybody has to be there and they're supposed to follow a certain set of rules, but there's always a way to just, you know, very subtly avoid following all the rules. And if you are still stuck there two, three years past the, the age where you should have graduated, and you're basically physically a fully grown man and you're surrounded by much younger kids who, you know, can't fight back as, as effectively and you got a switchblade in your pocket. Yeah, you can make for some bad times for some people. Yep. And, and that's the illegal, not condoned violence in the system as opposed to the Dennis on the football field playing a sanctioned game and gets totally crushed and hurt and injured in an incredibly terrible way, which I'm sure we'll talk about more later. 
And then even the teachers, right? Like his yeah. coach is not a pleasant person to be around. He's a winning is the only thing. And I'm going to beat you kids and make you do practices double time and and really run you out because I want us to win this game as opposed to make this a learning experience or something. So like they're getting it from all sides. They're not just getting it from the bullies, but they're getting it from the teachers, from the sports they play, just sort of the whole school life in general. Yeah. So I am glad I'm not in high school anymore, Jay. <laughs> as am I. Are there any Dark Tower thinnies in this section of the book, Sean? Jay, this is a huge stretch. As we pointed out in the last episode, King missed an opportunity when Darnell told Arnie to put Christine in stall 20. Mm. And we said, oh man, why did he pick 20? He could have picked 19. Exactly. Well, in this section, we get told about two stalls on either side of stall 20, which means that one of these is stall 19, because on either side of 20 should be 19 and 21. So in this line from King, in the stall to the right, two fat guys in bowling league shirts were putting a camper cap on the back of a pickup truck that had seen better days. The stall on the other side was deserted. One of those two stalls is 19. And I'll leave it up to you and our readers and our listeners to decide which one of those is stall 19, which one of those stalls better represents all that is the Dark Tower. Is it the one with the two fat guys in the bowling shirts? <laughs> or is it the one that is deserted? I'm going with the one that's deserted. Okay. But let, let me throw a wrench in, into your uh, your works here. I think I know where you're going because I think I might have thought of this, but I don't want to talk about it. What, what if it's like a parking lot and all of the spaces on one side are odd numbers and all of them are even numbers? And the, the spaces on either side of 20 are 18 and 22. That's exactly what I was afraid you were going to say. For the purposes of this conversation, that's not the way it is. One of these stalls is stall 19. <laughs> Fine. I will retract that contradiction and also embrace the deserted as a, um, makes me think of the desert, like the Mohane Desert. Yes. I like it. Yes. Thinny confirmed. So there you go. That is canonical Dark Tower Thinny. <laughs> <laughs> I'm certain that you have better Dark Tower thinnies than I do. Well, I'll leave it to you to decide if they're better, but I have two. <laughs> All right. I wanted to call out this line as a thinny. He reminded me a little bit of Moloch, the god we read about in my Origins of Literature class. He was the one who was supposed to be able to see everywhere with his one red eye. Mm. And of course, that reminded me a lot of Sauron from Lord of the Rings, but duh, also the Crimson King. Yep. Dead on. You're absolutely right. One red eye. One red eye. And then in the scene where Buddy Repperton and the other bullies are attacking Arnie and the switchblade comes into play, one of the teachers comes out and handles it. Like he, he really handles the situation <laughs> in, a, in a way that, you know, was, uh, I thought kind of fun as uh, Mr. Casey. And there's a line about Mr. Casey where, so the thing about Mr. Casey is that nobody fucked around with him because he wasn't afraid of kids deep down like so many other teachers were. The kids knew it too. And he kind of reminds me of Court. Mm. So Court wasn't a gunslinger, but he taught all the gunslingers and he took no shit from the gunslingers. Yep. And I don't know that like Mr. Casey is sort of worthy of being called a gunslinger in a, you know, in a teacher's role, but as a teacher, I think he's he's kind of like somebody who could shape future gunslingers if he has the right students. Yeah, I liked how as a teacher he 
in many of these situations, if there was a fight between five guys, all five guys would end up going to the office and get suspended. Mm-hmm. And Mr. Casey was able to immediately tell which three were the bad kids and which two kids were probably just defending themselves. And the way he treated the bullies, Buddy and Don and Moochie, like you said, he handled it. Mm-hmm. He said, you two, office right now. Buddy, you're either going to show me the knife and get suspended, or you're going to get kicked off of campus and I'm going to call the cops and you're going to get arrested. Mm-hmm. And just that way of handling it. And then giving Arnie and Dennis the respect that, hey, I know something was going on. Tell me your side of the story and, and I'm going to believe it. Like That was just a a person who took things into his own high hands and saw what was right and wrong and made decisions. And like you said, that's a good court trait, I think, which is what he was trying to get out of the gunslingers, right? Mm-hmm. Figure out right and wrong and mold these kids either by kicking them out, you know, you don't pass the test, you're headed out of Gilead or, you know, you're, you're going to continue on. And I, I see that. So that's a good one. Nice work there, Jay. Thank you. Those are all the thinnies I have. How about any yucking it ups? All right. The first part of this is a little fun stuff for me, but then the second part's the yucking it up. So the Hillmen is the name of the Libertyville team. Then it says the Hillmen, dumb name for a team, but what's so bright about being known as the Terriers when you get right down to it? Went 40 yards on their first two plays, going through our defensive line like cheese through a goose. And that like cheese through a goose thing is just, just gross. Well, that seems like the cleaned up version of the way I always hear it, which is like shit through a goose. Yeah. I guess the idea for me is like a goose eating the cheese and then passing through the digestive system. There just seems to be a lot more to that. Because than, geese than are it, lactose intolerant? Yeah. As opposed to a goose just <laughs> shitting. Like I can only imagine what a cheese caused goose shit looks like. Or <laughs> See? That, All right. This is, <laughs> this is now yucking it up territory. Yeah. that's See? There you go. <laughs> Oh, all right. Give me a moment to recover from the uh, <laughs> goose with explosive diarrhea you just put in my mind. Yep. <laughs> now I'm picturing them taking off and flying over <laughs> a parking lot. <laughs> yep. Uh, uh You know, we just finished talking about how we're not in high school anymore. That's because we're in kindergarten. (laughs) So my yucking it up is a little bit more, um, it's more of like a a cringe than a gross Mm. out. It's basically the description of what happened to Dennis on the football field. Because both of his legs got broken, the left in two places, his right arm whipped around behind him and that was broken. And then he also cracked his skull and the doctors gave him a very euphemistic term of also having a lower spinal accident (laughs) yeah that's not good like holy crap i don't know it's like he's practically put in a blender yeah really bad and all of this happened while just playing high school football yep which my memory of the movie adaptation is dennis gets distracted and tackled and gets hurt because he wasn't prepared for a hit here, it's because he was like hit by three of the hillmen mm-hmm. and like kind of his body was like pushed in three directions at once. So even though he was kind of ready for a hit, there's only so much sheer force your, you know, your body can take, I guess. Yeah. That's my yucking it up. If you sit and think about the shape his body was in when, when he was wheeled into the hospital. Yep. Pretty gross. Indeed. 
All right, so just a reminder that you can support this show and gain access to exclusive Patreon content, such as bonus podcast episodes, by becoming a patron. Visit patreon.com slash twoguysdarktower to learn more. And Jay, we have two patrons who are celebrating one-year anniversaries. They are Michelle D. and Cheryl T. And so we want to thank them for continuing to support the show. Yeah, thank you both. It especially means a lot for you to be supporting us for such a long time. Yeah. All right. Well, I think it's time for some fun stuff. Oh, it's definitely time for some fun stuff. Why don't you kick us off? All right. Dennis says that he poured himself a glass of Hawaiian punch. Gross stuff, but I love it. And I guess the folks in Western PA do not have any Zarex, which is King's favorite go-to fruit punch type drink. But I'm a fan of Hawaiian punch, so. Yeah, me too. I don't think I've had it in maybe like 20 years, but that was something that I always enjoyed. For some reason, it came in a can <laughs> instead of a bottle, and you had to get the other side of the the the, the, the bottle opener with the sharp point, and you put a hole in one side and a hole in the other side. Yeah, so the air could go through. Like it was great. It just came in these giant cans. It was fantastic. The other ways I remember Hawaiian punches when we would go to the amusement park or Sea World or the zoo. A lot of times they'd have uh, Hawaiian punch stands where they'd have plastic containers that were shaped like fruits. Oh. And you would have the Hawaiian punch in it. So you'd have like a, a grape-shaped cup. So so the cup was just as artificial as the drink. Yeah, exactly. Uh. Oh, yeah. Hawaiian punch, man. <laughs> See, this is why it's fun stuff, because it gets us yeah. thinking about our youth and laughing and having fun. Exactly. I was wondering if this was a reference to a Saturday Night Live skit, when Elaine walked in and asked if there was any more juice, and then she asks, or did you two coneheads drink it all? It's written in a lowercase c, so it could just be like, I don't know, random insult. But I checked my records, and the conehead skit first aired on Saturday Night Live, January 15th, 1977. So before this book was written, just, just a smidge before. So it could be. Could be a legit SNL reference. I'm pretty sure it was because Elaine seems like a very trendy type of teenager, mm-hmm. right? She's got like the Tiger Beat magazines and she's going through her Sean Cassidy and then John Travolta stages. And it made me think like, oh yeah, this is the type of girl who'd be up to date on what's on TV, including Saturday Night Live. So yeah, yeah, I'm guessing it's totally a Coneheads reference. Little would they know that, you know, all the way up into the 90s, they'd be making Coneheads movies and Dan Aykroyd and Jane Curtin would be reprising their roles and they have to narfle the Garthog and the whole nine. Uh, I think this is fun stuff. Both you and I noticed that in the high school that Dennis and Arnie goes to, there is a Nibrock dispenser with paper towels. And we had to look up Nibrock before because in our bonus episode that you can get on patreon.com about the short story, Here There Be Tigers, there was also a Nibrock dispenser in there in that bathroom. That's right. Specifically, that's bonus episode 23, and you can find that on patreon.com slash twoguysdarktower. Yes. And if we didn't point it out there, the fun fact about that is that Nibrock is Corbin backwards, mm-hmm. and the inventor of that dispenser was named Corbin. Uh-huh. But Nibrock sounds like a either like a biblical name of some weird king in the Middle East or a Cthulhu-type H.P. Lovecraft creature, a Nibrock. Or something from the Flintstones. Oh, there you go. (laughs) 
Hey, Wilma, where's our Nibrock? Um, returning to the fight with the bullies, I just made a note that sometimes you got to kick a little ass because Dennis says, I stepped into the ring and kicked Vandenberg in the ass just as hard as I could. Vandenberg, a tall, thin guy who was either 19 or 20 at the time, began to scream and dance around, holding his butt. He forgot all about helping his buddy. He ceased to be a factor in things. To me, it's amazing that I didn't paralyze him. I never kicked anyone or anything harder. And my friend, it show did feel fine. <laughs> and I really loved how Dennis relished in this moment of triumphant, like, fighting back. Like, like he was 100% justified in being in this fight and 100% justified in this use of force against this person who was trying to hurt him and his friend. So that's why it show did feel fine. Like to yep. just use all of his football player muscles and all of his football player skills on this jerk of a guy who was trying to just hurt him for no reason except meanness. So I thought it was a, a nice moment. And I also, because I'm a total dork, bolded the word 19 in that quote just because like a little, little side thinny. Yeah, sure. This seems very much like a Tom and Jerry cartoon. Like mm. Vandenberg gets kicked in the ass and then he starts running around screaming, dancing, holding his butt. Like that just seems like, I don't know, it, it's not very common to see a fight scene where somebody actually gets kicked in the ass. Like I always, I know we always talk about kicking ass and somebody got their ass kicked, but like to actually visualize someone kicking un someone in the ass just does not seem like, I don't know, the best fighting skills. Like your ass is generally padded pretty well <laughs> and kids are usually wearing tennis shoes. I mean, it would hurt, but it's not like I would start dancing around as if, oh, my ass, my ass. I just, the way I'm picturing this is just not how I generally consider a fight to go. It seems like you get kicked in the ass and the guy would turn around and punch you in the face. But hey, what do I know? I've never been in an actual ass kicking contest. <laughs> Jay, I think it's time for Other Worlds Than These. What are you watching, listening to, paying attention to outside of the world of Stephen King? I am watching the HBO Max series Station Eleven, which is adapted from the novel of the same name by Emily St. John Mandel. And when I read this book in early 2019, just prior to the pandemic, I was like, wow, mm -hmm. what an interesting post-apocalyptic novel about a super flu that wipes out much of society. Obviously, based on that premise alone, you're like, oh, sort of like The Stand, but not. It's a much smaller story about a group of people who, in a post-apocalyptic society, bring art and theater to the area of the Great Lakes doing a circuit. And then there are a number of odd connections between multiple characters in this book. And so far, the HBO Max series is a good adaptation of it. It's changed it in some slight ways, but not overall. And it does some really cool things with some time jumps in the way that they talk about pre-pandemic and post-pandemic. And I will say that it's a little bit of a hard watch in our current times based on everything that's going on. But if you're up for it, it's really good. Uh, Mackenzie Davis is the star of it. She's a fantastic actress from many things, including Halt and Catch Fire, as well as a fantastic episode of Black Mirror. Mm. That is one of my favorite 45 minutes of TV ever. Anyhow, it's really good. The book's fantastic as well. 
And so if you get a chance, I would suggest checking it out. I'm about halfway through as we record this. I'm sure by the time we go live with this episode, I'll finish watching it. And um, yeah, I hope it continues to be as good as it is. That sounds awesome. Yes. How's about you, Jay? I have been watching the Expanse series, which I'm sure everybody who listens to our show is at least familiar with its existence, if not already watching and reading the books. But um, I just want to endorse it here. I have read all of the books and I'm currently halfway through the ninth and final book. And I'm enjoying that just as much, if not more, than all the ones that came before. And I'm also watching the adaptation on Amazon Prime. And it is one of the best TV shows on TV right now. Mm. The budgets are apparently massive on these things. And each one is like a feature film in terms of how it looks. And the storytelling they're doing is just as sophisticated as the books, which is saying something because they rival Game of Thrones in terms of political intrigue and interpersonal relationships and numbers of characters and things like that. So it's a great series of books. It's a great TV series. And this is the sixth and supposedly final season that will be adapted to TV, unfortunately. I'm bummed about that, but the way that they have been structuring these episodes, it looks like they either decided to structure them as they've done in the past without knowing that it wasn't going to go past season mm. six, or they're really, really hoping that there's a fan uproar to demand <laughs> a continuation of the TV series. Either way, it's worth checking out, even if we only ever get six seasons it's basically covering the first six books, and the books kind of break down fairly distinctly into three trilogies. So it feels like there's a sufficient arc in the first three seasons and then these last three seasons. And if there's never a TV show for the you know seventh, eighth, and ninth season uh, or a book, that's fine. The books still are out there. They do. The story is finished. And you can find out how it all ends just by <laughs> opening up the books. So I'm just enjoying the crap out of these. And I think the third episode of season six was one of the best space battle scenes I've ever seen mm -hmm. on screen, rivaling anything by a Star Trek movie, a Star Wars movie, like amazing stuff. And it all works within the realm of actual physics. It's not like magic Star Trek or fantasy Star Wars. This is supposed to be a more you know, hard sci-fi world and uh, to see ships move this way and fight against each other in the ways that they do on screen. It's pretty impressive. So check it out if you're not already watching. And that's The Expanse on Amazon Prime. Better than The Last Starfighter? Mm, it's close. Mm -hmm. It's close. I watched the first few seasons of The Expanse, but haven't gotten back into it. And I'm going to have to give it a try based on your recommendation, Jay. Please do. Until then, that's all for this episode of Two Guys to the Dark Tower Came. Thanks, Jay. Thank you. Links to all of our social media are available in the show notes. If you like the show, please rate us on Apple Podcasts. To support the show, visit patreon.com slash twoguysdarktower. Next episode, join us as we cover Christine, chapters 20 to 34. For Jay Russo, I'm Sean McCurr. Thanks for listening.
what's really weird is like that Conehead movie came out 15 years after this book, but it was already like 30 years from now or 25 years from now. Huh? Like the Coneheads movie you're just talking about came out of like the 1990 something, which right. is like 15 years after this book came out. And they are probably like, oh my God, could you believe there's a Conehead movie 15 years from now? But yet we're still talking about it. It's been 30 years since that Coneheads movie and like 40 years since the... Oh, right, right. I'm just saying we're old, Jay. <laughs> yes. When you when you said from now, I thought no, you were like today, saying like... it takes place in the future. Ooh, the future of Coneheads. <laughs> <laughs> no. All that's going to get cut. He forgot all about helping his buddy. Being his buddy? Who's also named buddy. <laughs> and it's capitalized. What the hell? <laughs>